and welcome to the Napoleonicist. Today, the 22nd of July, marks the anniversary of the Battle of Salamanca. So it was obviously a no-brainer to talk about that today. For those of you who attended my talk for Dan Hill's History from Home on the 1812 campaign, don't worry, I'm not going to kind of bombard you with the same talk. Yes, the fundamentals that underpin this are the same because the events are similar. But I want to focus on Salamanca itself as opposed to overviewing the entire year. And I want to give you a more detailed description of the battle before exploring in a lot of depth whether the battle was a wasted victory given what happened in its aftermath. For those of you who are unfamiliar, let me set the scene for you. The year is 1812. Arthur Wellesley, currently the Earl Wellington but destined to become the Duke of Wellington, had spent the previous three years trying to establish a secure base of operations in Portugal from which he could take the fight to the French in Spain. The early part of the year had been spent taking the Spanish border fortresses of Theodore Rodrigo and Badajoz in January and April respectively. With those forts guiding the main roads into the heart of Spain in his hands, he was able to turn his attention on invasion of Spain. There were a few options open to him in terms of attack, but the most logical were either to attack the French Army of Portugal, which had its headquarters at Salamanca, or the Army of the South in Andalusia. Wellington opted to attack Marshal Marmont's Army of Portugal, as he knew that Salt's Army of the South in Andalusia would not be able to help Marmont, as a large part of it was occupied besieging Cadiz. Yet Wellington still faced a problem. Although he had roughly the same number of men as Marmont, with a little over 50,000 available for that campaign, he needed to ensure that Marmont would not receive help from other forces across Spain. He therefore organised a series of diversions to keep other French armies in Spain occupied and stop them from det detaching men to reinforce Marmont. The French had in excess of 200,000 men in Spain, and Wellington knew that he couldn't fight them all at once. In northern Spain then, the Spanish army of Galicia besieged Astorga, whilst a fleet of Royal Navy frigates under Commodore Popham sailed along the north coast, besieging towns and ports with the help of local Spanish guerrillas, before sailing off in search of another target whenever the French approached. The, the whole thing worked absolutely perfectly and the 48,000 strong French army of the north spent the entire summer trying to march faster than a ship could sail. General Suchet's 60,000 men on the east coast of Spain were contained by an expedition under General Maitland, which landed in Catalonia. Unfortunately, Lord Bentick attempted to use that force to launch a campaign in Italy, and as a result, Maitland's men didn't actually land until early July. But nonetheless, the build-up of troops in Mallorca alarmed Suchet enough to stop him from helping Marmont. Finally, Wellington used 18,000 men under Lieutenant General Hill to contain 24,000 men of Salt's Army of the South, with Salt's remaining 30,000 being busy with the Siege of Cadiz or being garrisoned around Granada. In addition to that, a Spanish army under General Ballesteros marched across Andalusia, trying to quite desperately avoid battle whilst also creating a diversion. This plan actually worked so well that Salt wrote to King Joseph, Napoleon's brother who had been installed on the Spanish throne, claiming that he was being attacked by 60,000 of the Allies. Once these measures were in place, Wellington's army crossed the river Agueda on the 13th of June 
with 45,400 Anglo-Portuguese infantry, and it's worth emphasising the Portuguese involvement there, 5,000 cavalry and 62 cannons. The Allied army caught the French dispersed and forced Marmont to abandon Salamanca. Marshal Auguste Frédéric Louis Viez de Marmont, Duc d'Aragues, was a very capable commander, as the Salamanca campaign would actually show. Born on the 20th of July 1774 to a noble family, Marmont's service in the French army proved to be long and eventful. By the age of 15, he was a sub-lieutenant in the French army. He later distinguished himself as an artillery officer, an accomplishment that would actually have huge ramifications. It was his efforts in this department of the French army at the Siege of Toulon which would famously establish his close relationship with Napoleon. It is widely believed that Marmont owed his eventual promotion and survival, actually, as a marshal to the friendship that blossomed in the aftermath of that victory. Nevertheless, Marmont's military skill was not to be dismissed. Before his posting to the Peninsula campaign in May 1811, Marmont had featured in a number of successful encounters in several countries, including Italy and Egypt. Back to Salamanca, though. The Allied army entered Salamanca, the city itself, on the 17th of June, and started besieging the fortified convents San Vicente, San Caetano, and La Merced, which Marmont had garrisoned with around 800 men. The Allied 6th Division, under Major General Clinton, carried out the siege, although since Wellington had underestimated the strength of those forts, he knew they'd been built, but didn't realise that they would be quite as formidable as they were, even though they were just fortified convents, the army didn't actually have siege guns or ammunition for the task. An attack on Fort Cayetano on the 23rd of June failed, but the garrison surrendered on the 27th after heated shot fired by the Allies set the largest fort, San Vicente, on fire. Meanwhile, Marmont had collected his army and marched towards Salamanca, hoping to relieve the forts. Wellington left the 6th Division in Salamanca, and marched to a place called San Cristobal to block Marmont's path. Two days later, after some skirmishing, Marmont withdrew. He had seen a pattern emerging when the French tried to attack Wellington on ground of his own choosing. Vimiro, 1808, Talavera, 1809, Basaco, 1810, Frente de Onero, 1811. He observed them all, well, not in person, but he, he saw what had happened and thought, wrongly as it turned out, that Wellington was a defensive general, something which cost him quite dearly at Salamanca. Though it's worth saying that Salamanca wasn't unprecedented, as Wellington had also gone on the offensive at Rolita in 1808 and Oporto in 1809. Nonetheless, for now, the French were chased by the Allies to the River Duero, although Wellington is criticised for not attacking his opponents and for hoping to win the campaign uh, by fighting a defensive battle. The lack of opportunity to fight the French certainly rankled with Wellington's men, who were always supremely self-confident in their own abilities. Marmont's retreat behind the Duero cut his line of communication with Joseph, allowing guerrillas to intercept his letters and pass them on to the British. However, the information gained from these, combined with Marmont's strong new position, actually undermined Wellington's confidence, as Marmont's army was stronger than he had thought. A deadlock developed until the 15th of July, when Marmont sent two divisions across the Duero at Toro in a feint designed to draw the Allies westward. Whilst Wellington moved the bulk of his army towards Toro to deal with this threat, 
Marmont sent the remainder of his army across the Duero at Tordesillas. At the same time, the two divisions at Toro recrossed the river and then marched to rejoin Marmont's army via the fords at Poyos. Marmont's manoeuvre had caught Wellington completely by surprise. His 4th Division under Major General Cole and the Light Division under Major General von Alten were now dangerously close to the French army as it approached Castrejo. Wellington narrowly avoided capture as he spent the 17th of July rescuing his two divisions and creating a new defensive line behind the Guarina. Although Marmont decided not to attack that position, General Clausel began an attack across the river north of Cagnizel before Marmont's orders actually arrived, but was then pushed back by two brigades of the successfully and recently rescued 4th Division. Marmont was quite disappointed that the results of this daring move hadn't produced something more beneficial to him. He had hoped to catch Wellington's army dispersed so that he could destroy it in sections. However, he still held the initiative and began marching southwest towards Salamanca, aiming to cut the Allied army off from its supply lines. Wellington had no option but to copy Marmont's movements, and over the next four days the two armies marched in parallel, often within cannon shots of each other. Many soldiers later reminisced about this surreal stage of the campaign. Jonathan Leach, an officer of the 95th Rifles, described it as a game of chess between the two manoeuvring armies. By the 20th of July, the Allies had returned to San Cristobal, but Marmont pushed his army further south and began crossing the river Tormes at the fords of Huerta. By the evening of the 21st of July, both armies had almost completed crossing the river and camped south of Salamanca near Santa Marta. Although neither side realised it, the next day would bring one of the greatest battles of Wellington's career. On the morning of the 22nd of July, neither the Allied nor the French army expected to fight a large battle that day. Wellington and Marmont continued their manoeuvring from the previous day. Wellington sent the 4th Division to the heights above the village of Los Arapas and occupied the Lesser Arapal, mistakenly believing that the Greater Arapal further south was less important. Once he realised that Marmont was sending forces to the Greater Arapal, he ordered a Portuguese battalion to race the French to it. However, the Portuguese arrived too late and were beaten back by the French. Wellington resigned himself to the possibility of retreating towards Theodore Rodrigo and posted the 3rd Division and Durban's Cavalry Brigade at Aldea Tejada to cover that possible retreat. Marmont continued with his aim of outflanking the British, using the Great Arapal as a pivot behind which he could swing his army. His confidence was increased when he witnessed Wellington move the 1st Division forward to attack the Great Arapal, only to cancel the order before the attack began. Marmont's plan began to collapse, though, as the divisions of Thomier and McCune, at the leading edge of his outflanking manoeuvre, marched too far along the Monte de Azan, south of Wellington's position, and became isolated from Bonnet's division near the Greater Arapal. Wellington seized that opportunity and used the 3rd Division to attack Thomier and the 5th Division to attack Mercune. The attack by the 3rd Division was a complete success and the French Division was broken by a single British bayonet charge. Although French cavalry under General Curto attempted to attack the 3rd Division, they were driven off by Durban's Portuguese dragoons. Just as the 3rd Division broke Thermier's men though, Le Marchand's heavy dragoon brigade arrived and charged the fleeing French, completely routing them, 
Vermeer's division lost 2,884 officers and men killed, wounded or taken prisoner. The 5th Division's attack against McCune 40 minutes later was just as successful. McCune's men had formed into square and column formations to try and deal with the threat from Le Marchand's cavalry. However, those formations were extremely vulnerable to infantry attack and the 5th Division broke the French with a single volley of musket fire followed by a bayonet charge. Once again, Le Marchand's men exploited this chance and destroyed another French division, killing, wounding or capturing 1,737 men. Le Marchand's men still had not finished their deadly work though, attacking the 1st Battalion of Topin's division, which had tried to move to support McCune. The rest of that division withdrew and played no further part in the battle. Le Marchand's charge had now lost momentum though. Le Marchand himself had been killed by a bullet which broke his spine, but the charge had destroyed the left flank of the French army. Throughout this time, the French were effectively leaderless. Marmotte was wounded at around 3pm by an exploding shell. He later claimed that he had planned to ride to tell McCune and Thomier to halt closer to the Great Arapal, but this seems unrealistic because that order could have been carried by an aide. General Clausel should have taken over, but he had also been wounded and couldn't be found. General Bonnet therefore took command, but was soon wounded himself. Clausel returned to the field to take control, but the French had little guidance for a really crucial hour in the context of the battle. Yet Wellington wasn't having it all his own way, as a crisis developed in his centre. He chose the 4th Division, the weakest of the units in the Allied army, to attack Clausel and used a brigade under Brigadier Pack to attack the Greater Arapal. Both attacks failed though, as the outnumbered 4th Division found themselves fighting the divisions of Bonnet and Clausel, whilst the terrain of the Greater Arapal caused Pack's attack to stall and was then driven back. This setback opened up a two-mile gap in the Allied line. Clausel seized that opportunity to make a counter-attack and Bonnet's men pursued the fleeing 4th Division. However, this exposed them to an attack by the 6th Division, part of Wellington's reserve forces, which in turn forced them back. Meanwhile, the 4th Division reformed and attacked Clausel, and with the help of the 6th and 3rd Divisions, succeeded in breaking the French. As the left and centre of the French army fled the battlefield, the French on the Greater Arapal were forced to abandon their position, deserting their cannons in the process. Clausel chose Ferry's division, which had seen little fighting all day, to cover the French retreat. Ferry made a heroic stand against the Allied 6th, 3rd and 1st divisions at El Sierro. This brought the French a crucial hour until darkness fell, and they were able to withdraw, but they lost 1,001 men in the process, including Ferry himself. As the French withdrew towards Abde Tormes, Wellington halted his tired army. He was later frustrated to learn that the Spanish garrison that he posted in the castle of Alba de Tormes had abandoned its post two days earlier as the French moved into the area. Although he blamed the Spanish for this, using it to explain his failure to completely destroy the French, in reality their evacuation was sensible, as no one expected a battle to be fought on the 22nd of July. The Allies had suffered 4,809 men killed or wounded, Yet that was eclipsed by the French loss of 12,435 men killed, wounded or taken prisoner. 
The Allies had also captured 20 French guns, 6 battalion flags and 2 eagles, the most prized standard that a French regiment carried into battle. The Battle of Salamanca was one of Wellington's most overwhelming victories. One of the greatest tributes for his success was written by French General Foy a few days after Salamanca, which said, This raises Wellington almost to the level of Marlborough. It was a battle in the style of Frederick the Great. Although Wellington had inflicted a huge defeat on the French at Salamanca on the 22nd, fighting actually continued on the 23rd, as the combined British, Spanish and Portuguese army pursued the retreating French. On the morning of the 23rd of July, the British cavalry attacked the French near the town of Garcia Hernandez, about 15 kilometres southeast of Salamanca. The French cavalry fled as the British advanced, leaving the division of General Foy isolated as it tried to cover the French retreat. Although Foy's men formed into square, which was the safest formation against cavalry, the Allied cavalrymen decided to attack regardless. In the fight that followed, the British broke two squares, when horses and riders that had been shot by the French fell on top of one of the square's sides. The British exploited this gap to attack the French from within inside their own formation, and destroyed two French battalions in the process. The achievement was extremely rare, costing the French around 1,100 men, compared to an Allied loss of 127 men. However, as the French continued to withdraw towards Valladolid, Wellington halted his exhausted army and considered his options. He could continue to pursue the army of Portugal in the hope of inflicting another defeat on them. Alternatively, he could march south and attack Marshal Sort's 50,000-strong Army of the South in Andalusia. Finally, he could take advantage of the fact that Joseph Bonaparte, who Napoleon had made King of Spain in 1808, had only 18,500 men to block his path to Madrid and was therefore incapable of defending the capital if he was attacked. After marching to Valladolid to secure his position in the centre of Spain, Wellington took the last option. This forced Joseph and a large number of Afrancesados, French sympathisers, to abandon the city. These refugees were attacked by guerrillas as they fled towards Valencia, where they arrived on the 31st of August. Meanwhile, Wellington entered Madrid on the 12th of August, to the joy of the Spanish residents. Jonathan Leach, an officer of the 95th Rifles, remembered the response of the locals as the British marched into the city, saying, Few of us were ever so caressed before, and most undoubtedly never will be again. Wellington's victory appeared complete by forcing Joseph to abandon his seat of power. Yet Wellington's success was beginning to work against him, alarming the other French commanders in Spain, and forcing them into action. Clausel managed to rally the army of Portugal remarkably quickly, despite telling the French Minister of War on the 6th of August that, quote, it would be impossible to find an army whose discouragement is greater than this. By the 13th of August, he was able to send Foy down the Duero to rescue the French garrison at Toro, before chasing the, French, the Spanish general Santa Clyde to Zamora and mauling his rearguard. Wellington was alarmed to discover that the French were so close to Salamanca and therefore threatening his supply lines with Portugal. After moving Hill's men from the Portuguese border to Madrid, he turned to deal with this new threat, pursuing Clausel's army towards Burgos and laying siege to the garrison inside the fortress town. Although Wellington confidently predicted in his letters that capturing Burgos would not take long, 
the siege was a pretty shambolic affair. I won't go into depth on Burgos, as if you want to hear more about that, you can listen to the episode on Wellington's Unknown Warriors, which talks about my efforts to see the remains of six soldiers killed there, analysed and given a proper burial. What matters, though, is that the siege was a failure, causing 2,000 Allied casualties in the space of a month, and the fort was never captured. Eventually, developments elsewhere in the peninsula forced Wellington to abandon the siege. Other French commanders were gathering to face the renewed threat posed by Wellington's position in central Spain. By the 24th of August, Soult's army started marching to move north, abandoning its siege of Cadiz on the 24th of August in the process. After evacuating Andalusia, he combined with King Joseph and marched towards Madrid with 60,000 men. On the northern coast, French General Caffarelli had finally contained Sahome Popham, who had captured the port of Santander, but brought 12,000 men uh, to reinforce the French army of Portugal, bringing their strength up to 53,000. On the 22nd of October, Wellington began to retreat towards Salamanca. Meanwhile, Hill's men abandoned Madrid to the fury of the Spaniards, who had greeted them so enthusiastically months earlier, and the two of them rejoined on the 8th of November. Although Wellington offered battle to the French on the same site near Salamanca as he had in July, the French, commanded by Soult, refused to attack him, despite numbering 100,000 men. Wellington was forced to withdraw his army, now suffering from a lack of supplies, towards Theodore Rodrigo through appalling weather. Issues with the morale of the troops had begun to emerge as early as the siege of Burgos, but in these conditions discipline collapsed, provoking a furious outburst from Wellington. The Allies were actually relatively fortunate, however, as the French decision not to pursue allowed the Allied army to reach the fortress safely on the 19th of November. With such a rapid withdrawal to the Portuguese border, it's reasonable to ask whether Wellington had squandered the victory at Salamanca. To this day, the 22nd of July 1812 is a date that has been widely acclaimed as a great moment in the history of the British army. Despite the clear setback, the implication that the Battle of Salamanca was wasted needs careful scrutiny, as Salamanca yielded a number of less obvious military benefits that cannot be ignored, and the long-term ramifications certainly outweighed the shorter-term losses. Criticism of Wellington's exploitation of his Salamanca triumph extends to the very moment of victory and the limitations of his consolidation of that success. His failure to completely destroy the army of Portugal as they retreated, therefore limiting the extent of his achievements, is one of the main reasons for the potential of Wellington's victory at Salamanca to be considered wasted. Troops were sent in completely the wrong direction, to Huerta, north of Alba Tormes, where the French were actually escaping. Wellington blamed this failure on the Spanish decision to withdraw the garrison at the castle of Alba de Tormes, where the French, when the French occupied the area on the 20th of July. Gates suggests that Wellington used this as an excuse to mask his mishandling of the pursuit. However, since Wellington had not been informed of the Spanish withdrawal until after the battle, his orders should be seen as an attempt to exploit his victory in sending men to Huerta and not a waste of its potential, because if Alba de Tormes was blocked, then the French might have been forced to move towards Huerta. 
It's also important to recognise that Wellington himself considered the whole thing to be a little misfortune which does not diminish the honour acquired by the troops in the action. The fact that the Allied army was still forced back to the Portuguese frontier by the end of the campaign season also creates the strong impression that the potential of Salamanca was wasted. In the last days of the retreat to Theodore Rodrigo between the 15th and the 19th of November, a lack of supplies and terrible weather conditions caused the Allied army's discipline to disintegrate, though Stephen Petty has shown that there were issues much earlier, almost from the moment that the army withdrew from Burgos. This suggests that the potential of Salamanca was not only wasted, but that the ultimate failure of the campaign that followed actually damaged the morale of the Allied army. However, because discipline was swiftly restored, once the army was resupplied near Theodore Rodrigo, the long-term effects of that lapse were actually minimal, and Wellington regained his men's trust very rapidly. Describing the Battle of Salamanca as wasted on the grounds of lack of additional ground gained also fails to appreciate the benefits, both strategic and in terms of politics and propaganda, that Salamanca enabled. It's important to recognise that although the French armies pushed Wellington back to the Portuguese border, they had, in Weller's words, nothing to be proud of. The French had been forced to abandon a number of gains that they had made over the previous three years, most notably Salt's stronghold over Andalusia. The siege of Cadiz had also been raised, and the French were only able to reoccupy Madrid for eight days in November 1812. Indeed, those gains were so significant that Liddell Hart suggests that in comparison, the lack of ground gained was actually superficial. As Jack Weller highlights, the strategic significance of these facts renders the argument of Salamanca being a wasted victory unrealistic, as Wellington's campaign in 1812 following the battle was notable for its strategy rather than its tactics. As a huge portion of southern Spain was prized from French control and became a no-man's land, the military potential of this victory was not wasted even if the Allies ultimately held less ground physically. In fact, the retreat from Burgos was inevitable, really, considering the huge number of French forces deployed in Spain. The French had 200,000 men in the Iberian Peninsula, and, as Gates highlights, it was impossible for Wellington's 73,000 men to resist them if the French abandoned their garrisons and combined to fight him. Wellington often suggested in his dispatches that this problem was amplified by the unreliability of the Spanish troops under his command. As his letter to Lord Bathurst on the 21st of September 1812 indicates, and I'm quoting here, The worst of our situation is that the Spanish do nothing by themselves. We must have British troops everywhere, and I'm afraid I must be wherever a serious operation is to be carried on. This suggests that whilst Salamanca was not wasted, it could not actually be exploited to its full potential. Another plausible case for arguing that Salamanca was a wasted victory centres on the contemporary beliefs that, after such an overwhelming victory over the French, the Allies would drive the French forces back to the River Ebro by the end of 1812. Harvey suggests that Wellington squandered his advantage by attempting to capture Burgos in the attempt to maintain a steady stream of victories. However, Muir points out that the Duke was faced with a knotty problem, which Wellington never satisfactorily solved. Wellington's position in the centre of Spain meant that, with long supply and communication lines with Portugal and Lisbon, 
he was exposed to French attacks from the north and the south. Wellington was unable to solve this problem until the French had been forced out of southern Spain, but had been unable to take the fight to them there because that would have been exposed himself to attack from the north. As a result, Wellington's ultimate withdrawal to Portugal can be seen as inevitable. Yet, it was the news of Wellington's success against Marmont that compelled Marshal Soult to abandon all of southern Spain in order to help the army of Portugal, therefore solving that problem. The majority of criticism for Wellington's siege at Burgos revolves around its seeming lack of relevance in terms of time and strategy. Lawford and Young argue that one is almost tempted to believe that Wellington began the siege in default of anything better to do, with the siege forming no part of any long-term plan. Wellington has been berated for uncharacteristically poor preparations in conducting that siege. He had fundamentally underrated the difficulties in laying siege to Burgos, and therefore was inadequately prepared for such an intensive operation, possessing no siege guns worthy of the name, a mere three heavy guns, instead having to resort to mining, a technique in which his men had almost no experience or training. This lack of preparation was exacerbated by possessing none of his storming divisions, instead of relying on his first division, which, having been denied the chance to fight at Salamanca, begged to take part in this operation. It is also difficult to see what advantages Wellington would have reaped by taking the castle. By destroying the fortifications in the process of the siege, he would have gained very little garrisoned benefit from them, as a costly and time-consuming rebuild would have then been required. The disastrous retreat that Wellington ultimately had to undertake was accompanied by similar miseries that beset the retreat to Corinna in the winter of 1808-9. Some soldiers who had endured both episodes later declared that the retreat to Burgos was actually far worse. Yet Liddell Hart argues that the withdrawal from Burgos was a fine feat of generalship due to Wellington's appreciation of his own dictum that the best test of a general is to, quote, know when to retreat and dare to do it. Wellington's withdrawal meant that the French were not able to defeat him and therefore nullify the effects of Salamanca, ensuring that his victory was not, in effect, wasted. The disappointment that was felt, both within the army and the government, at the lack of tangible gains from the Salamanca campaign was accentuated by the unrealistic hopes that many had in the aftermath of his victory. The extent of this is demonstrated by the Paris Regency Council's fears that Wellington would manage to fight his way through Spain and attack France whilst Napoleon was occupied fighting Russia. That fear was unrealistic due to the number of French troops who remained in the peninsula after the Battle of Salamanca in comparison to the number of Allied troops. Nonetheless, it suggests that the significance of Salamanca was fully appreciated by the French government. There were also a number of benefits that arose from Salamanca which could not physically be wasted. Rory Muir calculates that Salamanca cost the French 162 officers and 7,529 men killed or taken prisoner, without factoring in the wounded. Those losses were difficult for the French to replace due to the demand created by Napoleon's campaign in Russia. Another benefit that could not be physically wasted was the psychological impact of the Allied victory at Salamanca on the French.
As Charles Oman notes, no one on the French side had yet realised that Wellington on the offensive could be no less formidable and efficient than Wellington on the defensive. It also had a major impact on frontline soldiers. Maximilian Foy, a divisional commander at Salamanca, famously wrote, It raises Wellington almost to the heights of the Duke of Marlborough. Previously one recognised his prudence, his choice of position, his ability in using them. At Salamanca he showed himself a great and able manoeuvrer. It was like one of Frederick the Great's battles. This admission of Wellington's skill as a commander is highly significant because, as Muir highlights, self-confidence and esprit de corps was a critical motivating factor for troops during a campaign and in a battle. As a result, Wellington's ability to continue inflicting defeats on the French armies in Spain substantially undermined French morale. The extent of this deflation is demonstrated by Clausel's comments to the French minister that I mentioned earlier, that it would be hard to find an army whose discouragement is greater than that of these troops, referring of course to his own men. Wellington himself felt that he had the psychological ascendancy in the aftermath of Salamanca, claiming, I do not believe that there are many soldiers who were in that action who are likely to face us again till they shall be largely reinforced indeed. Napoleon, however, dismissed this upon learning of Wellington's victory, saying, Events at present are giving Wellington a reputation, but in war men lose in a day what they have spent years building. Of course, at the time, Napoleon was himself engaged in a campaign which would directly lead to him losing what he had spent years building, as his Grand Armée embarked on the disastrous Russia campaign. The moral ascendancy extended far beyond Wellington's battlefield reputation. This can be seen in the Spanish jubilation which greeted the liberation of Madrid. A witness to Wellington's entry into the Spanish capital wrote that, quote, Ladies threw down their most valuable veils and shawls for his horse to pass over. They got hold of his legs as he sat on horseback and kissed them. This joy and strengthening of the Spanish resolve produced notable benefits. Anti-French propaganda was already in circulation in Madrid prior to Mont's defeat at Salamanca, but its liberation allowed for its distribution on a wider scale. With the French now absent from the majority of Spain, Patriot propaganda insisted that victory was now a foregone conclusion. In turn, this allowed further volunteers to be absorbed through promises of substantial bounties, with the time of year further bolstering recruitment numbers as many day labourers could not find work in the summer. This can be seen in how the number of guerrillas fighting the French soared. It's estimated that as many as 38,250 guerrillas were active by the end of 1812, organised into 22 partidas. This is a further example of the unexpected developments which considerably assisted the Allied effort in the aftermath of Salamanca. The Spanish government had recognised the fact that it was an Anglo-Portuguese and not a Spanish army which recaptured Madrid after four years of war, and that the Spanish forces played an insignificant role directly in Wellington's success. And therefore, as a result, they offered him the command of all Spanish forces. However, it must be acknowledged that the Spanish proposal was fraught with problems. Charles Esdell shows how the offer was limited as the Duke was merely to command the army in the field. He was not allowed to make any alteration to its internal arrangements. 
This conflicted with Wellington's desires, as he had written earlier in the year that he considered it essential for a commander-in-chief to be in control of internal arrangements, such as the proper provision of food and water, so as to instill within the Spanish a regular system of subordination and discipline. Once we appreciate this conflict, in Estelle's view, the offer may be seen as one more attempt on the part of the Spaniards to manipulate their allies for their own purposes. Wellington recognised this and felt compelled to refer the Spanish offer to the British government. As a result, Wellington did not formally take command of the Spanish army until the 22nd of November. However, by November, the Duke had suffered severe losses, which would make it far less likely that Spanish Cortes, the Parliament, would make the same sort of concessions that Wellington desired. And yet, and I'm paraphrasing Rory Muir here, the events of the campaign had confirmed the British general in his belief in their necessity. For Wellington then, the Spanish attitude appeared to have contributed to the ultimate failure of the 1812 campaign and provides a sense that some of the short-term potential benefits were in fact wasted uh, due to political complications. However, the victory at Salamanca also had a number of other beneficial influences on the European political arena, particularly in Britain. News of the Allied victory at Salamanca did not reach England until August due to disruptions in the lines of communications in Spain due to fog. However, when news of the victory spread, it created an atmosphere of widespread euphoria amongst the public. The Archbishop of Canterbury even prepared a special prayer of thanks for the Duke's efforts. Several prominent contemporaries in the UK lavished praise on the Duke. The Prime Minister, Robert Jenkinson, the second Earl of Liverpool, for example, congratulated Wellington in a letter, quote, on the most decided as well as brilliant victory, which has for centuries crowned the British arms. Bathurst's words epitomise how great Wellington's achievement was perceived to be. He wrote to Wellington applauding his victory over, quote, army in number, greatly your superior, in discipline, in valour, and in conduct, inferior to none except the army which subdued it. Bathurst was writing in this instance to inform Wellington of his reward for this accomplishment, the king raising his position to Marquess of Wellington, noting the high sense in which His Royal Highness the King regarded Wellington's merits. Although Bathurst's estimate that Wellington faced a larger army is obviously false, this example nonetheless demonstrates the importance, the scale and the esteem in which the battle was held in Britain. Politicians were quick to exploit and capitalise on the public excitement at the news of the victory, which coincided with the end of the Luddite disturbances and a good harvest, to call an election in September 1812. Whilst Muir points out that general elections during this period did not dictate the rise and fall of governments, it is important to recognise that many of Liverpool's opponents lost their seats. As a result, the potential political benefits of the Battle of Salamanca in Britain were clearly not wasted, as Liverpool seized the opportunity to strengthen his government. As Muir highlights, Salamanca confirmed in office many of the ministers who had led Britain to victory in the Napoleonic Wars. Furthermore, the victory forced the political opposition in Britain, alarmed by the jubilant London crowd breaking the windows of a previously popular radical, Sir Francis Burdett's house, to refrain from publicly criticising Wellington's campaigns. Although Wellington's critics continued to make gloomy predictions about the outcome of the Peninsular War, Salamanca confirmed the government's wisdom 
in refusing Napoleon's token offer made before the launch of his campaign in Russia to restore the Portuguese, but not the Spanish monarch, in return for peace. This is a useful example of the ways in which some of the benefits of Salamanca, again, could not be actually could not actually be wasted, as the simple occurrence of the Allied victory was sufficient to demonstrate the government's astute judgment. It is also possible to argue that politically the fact that Wellington did not lose the battle was actually more significant than the fact that he won it. Liverpool's administration had been relatively weak when it came to power in the aftermath of the assassination of Spencer Percival on the 11th of May 1812. Although Liverpool's government survived a vote of no confidence on the 11th of June 1812 by over 100 votes, Wellington's correspondence show that the government was by no means secure. This is apparent in a letter to Edward Cook, the Under Secretary for Foreign Affairs, on the 7th of July 1812, in which he says, quote, The present government will certainly go on for this session, but they must get their strength to meet the next. If Wellington had been defeated at Salamanca, it is feasible that Liverpool's government would have fallen, potentially precipitating a major political crisis in which opponents to the war against France may have taken power. This is another way in which the benefits of Salamanca simply could not be wasted. It is also important to recognise that the British government did not waste the propaganda opportunities that Salamanca presented. Once news of the victory had been printed in the national newspapers, the government had the Extraordinary Gazette translated and reprinted in French and German, and then smuggled them onto the continent in order to spread discord amongst Napoleon's supporters and encourage his opponents. In capturing Madrid, Wellington secured a huge propaganda victory. Although the French claimed that Wellington had wished to parade himself as conqueror and liberator of the Spanish capital, their bitter comments were unable to disguise the fact that Wellington had demonstrated the fragility of French hold on Spain. Whilst Madrid was not strategically important, Wellington's decision to liberate the capital permanently dislodged the French hold over it. With 200,000 troops still in the Iberian Peninsula and an apparent lack of urgency in the Allied pursuit of French forces, Napoleon was initially indifferent to the loss at Salamanca. Roy Muir points out how the Emperor stated of the British forces, They cannot leave Spain and go make trouble for me in France and Germany. That is all that matters. Napoleon was so involved in the Russian campaign at this point in time that it must be recognised that Spain was, as Gates describes it, a secondary front. However, there were still important political consequences in the French Empire which arose from the battle. The Regency Council in Paris was so alarmed by the loss that they recalled Marshal Massena from retirement to take command of the Army of Portugal. The council feared that Salamanca would prove a catalyst for further losses, which could result in the French being driven all the way back to the Pyrenees. Salamanca also had a considerable effect on French public opinion, shaking confidence, according to the Minister of Police, General Save, in the Peninsular War and Napoleon's command. Whilst reviewing his campaigns in exile, even Napoleon commented that Salamanca and the series of French retreats that came after it destroyed my moral power in Europe. Such was Napoleon's desire to keep Spain under control in October 1812, 
he ordered King Joseph to relinquish no territories over which the French had a claim of control, even when it would perhaps have been better to fall back and amass the army. He demanded answers over the debacle at Salamanca and the return of Marshal Marmont to France in disgrace further displays how keenly the defeat was actually felt. So, on balance, describing Salamanca as a wasted victory is too simplistic. Despite having been pushed back to the Portuguese border by late November 1812, Wellington's victory at Salamanca inflicted huge casualties on the French and demoralised their army. Salamanca forced the French to abandon their hold of southern Spain in a desperate attempt to halt his advance. It was, as Leith Hay states, a victory which had shaken the whole fabric of French domination to its very base. This is also apparent in the political context. In France, the defeat led to public concern and state intervention into the infrastructure of French forces in Spain, leaving, in Muir's words, the Emperor's Spanish policy revealed in all its nakedness. The Battle of Salamanca also allowed Wellington to secure a propaganda victory in taking Madrid, which boosted the morale of the Spanish and assisted the British government in securing an electoral victory. Wellington's army's achievements in 1812 far overshadowed the setback of the retreat. So what do you think? Was Salamanca a wasted victory? Is there something that I've missed? As you know by now, I'm always keen to hear from listeners and discuss other perspectives. Have your say in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net or on Twitter. My address is at ZWhiteHistory. As I mentioned in the last episode, I've been having some technical difficulties, which has stopped me from bringing you some really interesting interviews on the cultural impact of the conflict in Britain and France. As soon as I can get those resolved, I will be bringing you those as they promise to be, frankly, brilliant. I'm also conscious that some of you would probably like to hear something that doesn't have the British in it. Yes, I do listen to comments that I get, even the scathing ones. And for a little while, I've been mulling over a piece on Napoleon's reputation. Admittedly, that's a bit of a hornet's nest. It's a badly kept secret. Actually, it's not even a secret that I'm not a fan of Napoleon. But I do want to be balanced. There are successes that are important to acknowledge. And even though I know that some of the pro-Bonaparte club are going to hate it and scream at me if I don't conclude that he was wonderful. I think it's well worth doing, uh, but it is taking a bit of time to put it together in, a, in an appropriate way. I'm also conscious that in a recent poll on Twitter, people asked for more narratives, so we'll be working on some of those for you. So, lots to come, and if you're enjoying the content, it's always helpful if you can spread the word, review the podcast on your preferred platform, tell friends and colleagues, retweet, share and so on. Your support really does mean a huge amount. I'll be back in August, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. Socially distance where you can. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.